You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is a monthly show looking at the world of comic books, graphic novels, and sequential art. If you've never listened to Panel Borders before, then each episode is going to feature comic book creators from across the world talking about all sorts of genres in one of the most exciting artistic media. People may have heard of the Poet Laureate and the Children's Laureate. As of last autumn, there's also been a position of Comics Laureate created, and the first holder of this post is graphic novelist, writer and artist Dave Gibbons. Dave is most famous as the illustrator of the comic book collected as graphic novel Watchmen, and we'll be talking about the development of the structure of Watchmen and the comic's various iconic covers. But before that, how he broke into the industry, and a surprising turn playing a superhero himself as the editor of a British weekly comic anthology. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Second Lakes International Comic Art Festival. It is my great pleasure to talk to the new Comics Laureate... Dave Gibbons. Um, with the announcement last night, I, I feel that some of the slides I've chosen might be a little bit scurrilous, but... Um... Well, I hope not, otherwise <laughs> I should be w- w- walking out. I'll be flouncing out in full laureate mode. <laughs> is, is there a laureate flounce? Did yes, they, I can flounce. Was that in the training? Yes, Fantastic. it is, yeah. Um, speaking of training, you started out as a building surveyor. Yes, I did. Was that due to when you were at college, they dissuaded you from going straight into comics as a potential career? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I ever wanted to do was to do comics. Um, but I was quite a bright kid at school. Like, you know, I, I got the result of my 11 plus. I don't know if anybody here remembers the 11 plus. But I got the successful result of that on my 10th birthday. So I was quite bright or precocious or whatever. And I went to a very academic school where they didn't even really do art as a lesson. You certainly couldn't do art O-level. Art A-level was, was mm. out of the question. And so um, I've, I've got a very vivid memory of my dad taking me to see the local artist. There was a guy who lived in a, a house at the end of the road and he, he, he smoked um, French cigarettes and wore sandals and itchy jumpers and he painted landscapes and things. I remember my dad taking me along there and I'm sure now when I look back on it, it was for him to have a look at my work, mm. to tell my mum and dad whether he thought I was good enough to be an artist. And he said to them, obviously, tell David to bring with him what he's working on at the moment. And what I was working on, I had a huge sheet of paper and I was redrawing, in other words, copying every single page of um, a World's Finest story. World's Finest was the comic in which Superman and Batman starred in one adventure together, which was the nearest thing when I was a kid. You got to a crossover. Mm. And I copied this line for line where I just changed Superman to Atom Man and Batman to Birdman. And the, the, the weird thing is, I've still got that piece of artwork. The villain was called the Duplicate Man, which, you know, was, was kind of a giveaway. But I think this artist looked at what I'd done and he must have said something along the lines of, well, he's obviously working hard on it, but it's obviously copied. I think that was what was said. So from that, then onwards, my mum and dad were quite gentle about it, but it was, no, 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 you, you can't really do comics. No, 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 no. It's nice to have as a hobby, but no, mm. you can't do comics. Then I thought I might become an architect. But, you know, the, to be an architect, it's like a, a, an eight-year course of study and only one in ten people ever qualify. And I knew I didn't have the fire in my belly for that. And the next sort of best thing was building surveying because it was still a bit of drawing. 
And as I discovered, I'll let you get another question in a minute. And, <laughs> and, and as I discovered, it had the advantage that you could get out of the office. You didn't have to spend all the time in the office. And I worked in London for the Corporation of London. Uh, and um, part of my beat was the old Kent Road. And the old Kent Road in those days in South London was full of junk shops, mm. all of which had a pile of mouldering old comics. Mm. And there were popular book centres. So I'd go and look at somebody's broken bog for five minutes and then I spend the next hour in the secondhand bookshops and that kind of got me back into comics and then it transpired that IPC magazines who published you know the uh, you know the lion and the buster and all those comics they were literally five minutes around the corner from where I worked so I, I started going around there and hanging around and uh, you know looking over people's shoulder and getting recognized and that was sort of how I actually broke into comics so yeah I did building surveying but not for very long mm. And like a lot of uh, British creators who want to break into the industry, you had work published not only in mainstream titles published by the likes of IPC and uh, DC Thompson, but also underground comics. You had a couple of strips in something called Nasty Tales. Yeah, well, um, there, was, there was a guy called Felix Dennis. I say was because unfortunately he died recently, and he was one of the editors of Oz magazine, and he was um, in a notorious trial in the 60s where... Uh, they did a, an issue of Oz which was called the School Kids issue, which had which featured a Robert Crumb character uh, naked with an erection with Rupert Bear's head on, and it was a pretty startling image. Mm. Uh, but anyway, the establishment thought these people should not be allowed to do this kind of thing and took them to court. And uh, the judge said to the defendants, who were Felix Dennis and. Uh, um, God, I can't, can't remember their names, but there were three of them. And they gave Felix Dennis a lesser prison sentence because, in the judge's words, he was less intelligent than the <laughs> others. And things, have spurred, things like that spur you to greatness. Mm. And he actually, when he died, he, had, he was a multi-millionaire. He had several homes in the, in, the, um, in the Caribbean and in England and North America. He lived with six or seven women. He loved his wine. He planted forests. He had a really, really good life and a very intelligent life for somebody who was not supposed to be intelligent. But early on, part of his passion was comics. Mm. And he'd seen a little strip that I'd done for, it was like a youth magazine. And he, um, I met up with him and he said, yeah, he wanted to do underground comics and he'd seen my stuff and he actually thought that I was an American because of the way I drew. Mm. And it'd be great if I could do some stuff for his comics. Um, so yeah um, the Trials of Nasty Tales was a kind of a parallel to that where one of these underground comics again was taken to court for obscenity mm. and mainly I think it was because the school kids issue of Oz it was obviously although it really wasn't was to do with children and comics are to do with children so you mustn't have anything scurrilous in a comic so they took Nasty Tales to trial and they got off they were absolutely acquitted as they mm. should have been but they decided to do a benefit comic which was called Trials of Nasty Tales, where the actual, um, it was the transcript of the, of, the, of the trial. There wasn't anything invented, and the things that I had the characters saying in the bit I drew were exactly what they said in court. Like the barrister did say, you're just a dirty-minded girl. Brilliant. That, that's what he yeah, says, brilliant. you know, uh, to Mick Farron, who was one of the editors, to, to, to his wife. So it, it, was, it was quite interesting. But the thing for me, really, I had no political agenda, but the real thing was I got my work in print and people saw it and I met other comic artists and it was a tremendous sort of, you know, learning experience. Mm. In your new role as Comic Laureate, you'll be, I guess, a bit of a figurehead of comics 
putting yourself out there to educate people about the medium. But it's not the first time that you've kind of taken that role. As for the uh, <laughs> British comic Tornado in 1979, you played a character called uh, Big E. Played it? <laughs> well, I you appeared in costume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, well, people always produce this as if it's some sort of guilty secret. I'm going, oh my God, put it away. But it it was it was a real lark actually, Um, because um, they tried to bring out a companion comic to 2000 AD, and it was going to be called Heroes, which is a good name for a comic, Mm. and it was going to be like a war hero and a um, an ancient history hero and a cowboy hero and a space hero. And because the editor of 2000 AD was supposed to be uh, Tharg, this alien from Beetlejuice, who was obviously just someone dressed up in a Halloween mask and a motorbike uh, (laughs) costume, they thought that they would have a hero, a superhero, a a stupid superhero, to be the editor of Heroes. So they got... they asked John Wagner first of all if he would do it, and he he asked for too much money, and he, he wouldn't have done it as well as me. But he, he he asked for too much. So they asked me if I would like to do it, and I thought, oh well, that could be a lark. So they paid me some money to do it, and Nick Lando, who at that time was the sub editor on 2018, and I went along to a theatrical costumiers, and we picked out some bits and pieces like the breastplate and the silver gloves and the boots and all this, and I made the the E, big letter E. Because the joke is, it's big, it's the editor, so it's big Ed, but it sounds like big head, you know, so it all kind of goes like that. And I spent I spent a day at King's Reach Tower, which was the editorial offices of 2000 AD, just showing off, you know, in, in this costume, pretending to lift up cars and mm. standing on the roof of the building. Um, but the thing that I did, fi- did find out about superhero costumes is that when you're on the top of a building, even, a, you know, a middle-sized high-rise like, King's Reach that actually cape equals sail (laughs) and the wind blows and the the cape gets lifted and you're drawn towards the edge of the building so there are the official photos of me standing there looking very heroic as much as I can muster for a split second but there's loads of them that the staff photographers got of me looking terrified and you know holding my cape so it didn't blow and climbing down the fire escape um so yeah, so it was it was uh, it, it was it was good fun, but I'm I'm perfectly at peace with my my inner superhero. Well, I, I think just you know you were thirty years ahead of the time as a cosplayer. You know. Well, well, thanks. Yeah. And <laughs> and the and, the re- and it wasn't called Heroes in the end anyway, so it was all a bit pointless because the board at IPC thought Heroes, mm, no, it's not exciting enough. You know, um, could you come up with the name of six or seven jet planes and we'll choose one of those? So that's why it's called Tornado. Nice. Makes no sense. <laughs> uh, speaking of larger-than-life figures, uh, around that time you were also drawing the Doctor Who strip. Obviously, when you have a Doctor Who comic, it has the $100 million budget, as it were, that the, uh, the TV series didn't. But it also meant that you had to deal with likenesses. Yeah. Was the mixture of those two things capturing Tom Baker on the page and also thinking what would Doctor Who be like for the $100 million? Mm. Was that something that you found attractive? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing was, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of work for 2000 AD, um, and I'd known Des Skin, who was the editor of, of Doctor Who, for a long, long time. Um, and he was at Marvel UK, and he wanted to start up a Doctor Who comic. Mm. And he originally asked me if, if I would ink it, if Paul Neary, who was the art editor, was going to pencil it, so they could keep control over how it looked, and I was going to ink it. And I wasn't really interested in that, because it wouldn't have been a full week's work, so I'd have had to kind of fill in doing other things. 
So I said to Des, well, you know, I'd like to draw the whole thing. And he said, well, let's see if you can get a likeness of Tom Baker. So I, I had some pretty good photos, so I did a few drawings and they looked like Tom Baker. Um, and I think the, the real magic ingredient was that I knew that Pat Mills and John Wagner who were the top writers on 2000 AD, who virtually had created the comic, that they'd had some ideas that they'd pitched to the BBC for Doctor Who, but for various reasons they'd had them knocked back. So I said to Des, if I draw it, I could probably get Pat Mills and John Wagner to write it as well. So Des thought, oh, this is, this is, this is a coup. And John and um, Pat were very happy to dust off the stories that they'd already plotted out and to write them and increase the budget and you know make, make rather more of them. Um, so uh, that was great and I'd never worked with Pat or John before so that was wonderful for me to have the opportunity to work with them and Doctor Who was just the kind of thing I like drawing anyway I mean I like drawing action and I like drawing science fiction and I like things that have got a bit of humour in them too and you know Doctor Who fills all of that as far as likenesses were concerned um, uh, a friend of mine called Martin Asbury who used to draw Garth at one point in the Daily Mirror and later went on to become a really successful storyboard artist. Probably any any superhero film that's been out in the past uh, 30 years, he's done storyboards for. So, um, re- really good artist. But he, at one time, had drawn Doctor Who for Looking or, or one of those. And, of course, there weren't even video recorders in those mm. days. I mean, it's amazing to think this. But he'd taken a load of photos live off the TV, as it happened, of Tom Baker... Um, so he gave me his stack of Tom Baker photos, nice. which meant I had some pr- pretty good likenesses. So what I used to do, um, I took a leaf out of the book of an artist called Alberto Giolitti, who drew Star Trek for Gold Key. Mm. And that's a nightmare drawing Star Trek, because you've got to draw a likeness of everybody. So what he would do <laughs> on any given page, there would, be one, there would be one picture of the Enterprise flying through space. Brilliant, no, no likeness needed. Um, but one picture of that. There'd be one picture that was a silhouette shot of them all on the bridge. And there'd be another one which was looking over their shoulders, looking at the view screen. And then there'd be one good likeness. So I kind of did that with, with, with Doctor Who. As long as every couple of pages I use one of the reference photos to get a really good likeness of Tom Baker you'd sort of believe that it was a likeness of him the rest of the time. Obviously, in the end, I drew him so often that I could get a pretty good likeness anyway. The real problem came when Tom, with his curly hair and his big nose and his double chin, easy to draw, retired or, or was, 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 was taken. And it, he, there was a regeneration and they introduced um, Peter Davison. And the first episode I drew with him in it, I only had one copy of I think it was the Daily Mirror or the Daily Mail with mm. two grainy black and white pictures and I had to make up the whole thing just based on those two pictures and his agent was furious and said to my art agent this is terrible these aren't you're making my client look ugly this won't do you've got to stop it we're not going to print this and we explained our problem and um, very kindly Peter Davison uh, agreed to let me and a photographer go along to Television Centre where mm. they were filming it and take shots of him. He, he stood there and let us take pictures all the way around his head, pull different expressions. So from then on, I was actually able to get a better likeness, I think, of Peter Davison than I ever had of Tom Baker because I had every reference shot um, I could make. Mm. Um, I'll also admit to a cheat. Shall I give you a professional artist to how we Please cheat? I, I think as Comics Laureate, it's your duty. I think as Comics Laureate, I'll, pe- I'll pull back the curtain of mystery. I, I do feel like a bit like a magician being 
is going to be drummed out of the magic circle for telling you how they actually saw the lady in half. But I, I had, had a wonderful machine called the Grant Projector. Not the Grant Projector, the Opaque Projector, the Artograph Projector. And you put a photograph in it mm. and you can project it down onto the drawing surface. So I'd get me really good likeness of Tom Baker and project it down and get all the proportions absolutely spot on. And then freehand the rest of it mm. to make it match the rest of the strip. But that was, that was a tremendous... Um, a to me at that time of course these days with, with the internet you know there's every picture you could possibly need of everybody and you can just trace it straight straight off the computer in photoshop if you if you want to mm-hmm. do that but that's uh, yeah a bit, a bit later on actually dc comics recruited me and wanted me to draw star trek mm-hmm. and i actually refused to do that because that would have sent me crazy during all, all those lenses <laughs> i mean you know one time lord fine but an entire crew on a spaceship forget it you know <laughs> Uh, well, you've mentioned DC, so should we talk about uh, your first few strips for the company? Yeah. I- indeed, doing backup strips for uh, Green Lantern meant you were able to do out- outer space stuff. Yeah. And presumably, since um, you and Alan Moore had only a limited number of pages to do these backup strips, part of the uh, mission was to pack as many ideas in as possible. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, um, Alan's background sort of at that point was that... Yeah, I think he probably started writing Swamp Thing by then, but of course a lot of things Alan did early on were these um, future shocks or time twisters where they were essentially little four and five page shock ending stories. So uh, he was well used to writing in that short form. And I've always loved that form as well because as you say, you do have to pack the ideas and it does become very concentrated. And you can do that idea and then move on to um, another idea. Um, so yeah I mean when DC recruited me and they wanted me to do Star Trek and I said no they got me doing backup strips in, you know things for Green Lantern and for The Flash as, as well and so I was kind of working on doing that that, that kind of thing when Alan came on board mm. um, and I think actually Mogo Doesn't Socialise which was the most celebrated thing we did that might actually have come a bit a bit later but um, I mean there was such a wealth of ideas in there and actually quite recently in the Green Lantern Corps all that stuff has been expanded and actually yeah, been yeah. made part of the, the greater Green Lantern mythos which is a testament to Alan's powers of invention mm. um, The next thing that you did with Alan was uh, the Superman annual Yeah, I get the impression that you were always more of a DC reader than a Marvel reader so all of these characters like Superman, Green Lantern ones that you had followed in your youth so was there a bit of a, a frisson working on them you know as a professional oh yeah yeah no I, I mean it was um, um, when I first tried to get into American comics I, I went to New York in about 1973 and I, it was DC that I called at first mm. I, you know all of these things you're asking me I've got long long stories about these I know, I, 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 we've I, only got an hour I, know, I, mean, I was just going to say if, if I don't get the chance to plug it later I am writing my autobiography so um, I'm, and I'm about a third of the way through it at the moment I'm not doing it as a chronological autobiography which sounds a bit confusing but it kind of works you'll, you'll, you'll have to see exactly how it does mm. and the, the story of my first entry into DC and how it came about is probably quite interesting in itself, although it's outside the, the scope of this. But yeah, basically DC were my first choice. It was them that I collected as a kid. And I liked a lot of Marvel comics, but they never had that same place in my heart. So when DC eventually recruited me, I was thrilled. That was where I'd always wanted to be. Uh, and Green Lantern had been a favourite of mine mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Green Lantern has always loomed large in my legend. And in fact... 
Um, I haven't got to this bit in the autobiography yet, so I'll, I'll tell it just in case I don't get to it, um, was when I was a building surveyor, mm. and I'd sort of given up the idea of being in comics for a bit. Um, I remember going into a, a newsagent shop. I still smoked in those days to buy a packet of cigarettes, and as I stood there in the, in the queue, it was a spinner rack. I thought, mm. oh, comics, yeah. And the front comic was um, a Green Lantern comic. It was called Prince Peril's Power Play, and it had Green Lantern in it, Hal Jordan Green Lantern flying out, and this kind of barbarian with a big sword, and it had the Golden Age Green Lantern crumpled at the feet of this warrior. God, that looks so exciting. And I, have to, I have to buy it. And I, I saw the comic fan in me came back, and I, I pulled it out and bought my cigarettes and bought the comic, and I think I was even so craven as to say something like, oh, it's, it's for my kid brother, you know, because, uh, you know, it wasn't for me. Uh, um, and I thought, God, haven't comics come on, which later, a few months later, when I worked as a surveyor, led me to try and fill in everything that I'd missed since I was a kid. So Green Lantern, yes, has had a p- pivotal meaning. The, the Superman annual was, was, again, it was just one of these things of literally being in the right place at the right time. Um, in 1984, I went to the Chicago Comic Convention as a guest of DC, and they had a party, like a cocktail party, piss up basically and um, I was at that and I'd spoken to Alan shortly before I'd left and he'd sent me the outline of what was to become Watchmen mm. and I said oh, you know, I'd love to do this he said oh yeah you'd, you'd be great for it Dave and I said to him well I'm going to the States I'll, I'll see what I can do whether you know I can get on it so I had this DC drink up I went up to Dick Giordano the managing editor and said oh Dick this thing that Alan's writing with the Charlton characters I'd love to draw that he said, oh, so how does Alan feel about it? I said, yeah, he'd like me to draw it. He said, it's yours. So that was great. So I kind of, obviously I didn't know what Watchmen was going to be at that point, but I thought, great, I'm going to get a chance to work with Alan on something really good. And I reeled away and I literally bumped straight into Julius Schwartz, who had edited all my favourite comics from when I was a kid, all the Green Lantern and Flash and Justice League, Mystery in Space, Strange Adventures. And he said, so Dave... When are you going to draw some Superman for me? <laughs> and I said, anytime you like, Julie, who, who's writing it? He went, who do you want to write it? I said, Alan Moore? He said, yeah, fix it up. So I went back to New York with the DC crew and from Julie Schwartz's office, phoned up Alan in England and said, you know, that Superman story you were telling me about. And he was thrilled to do it because, you know, Julie Schwartz was our favourite editor. Superman is the granddaddy of, of them all. And it was brilliant as well just to work on one story again what you were saying about concentrated little backup stories this was one 40 page story where we could get all the stuff we loved about Superman and Krypton and Fortress of Solitude and the supporting cast and everything so yeah that's that's how that came about and that was that really was if Watchmen had never happened that would have been enough for me as a comics fan I think oh but it did it did Um, (laughs) as we know I mean, that cover, which actually we have a fiscal edition on the table as well, is so iconic. And the idea of the cover of each individual issue being a zoom-in of the first panel, where did that idea come from to actually apply some perhaps graphic design iconography you know, to a comic like that? Because it seems very unique for the time. Yeah, well, the thing we did know about Watchmen was that it was only going to be sold in direct-sale comic book stores. Oh, okay. And when Alan and I were talking about it, we realised that you know, when a comic book was put in a spinner rack, like the Green Lantern comic in the in the newsagents, it, it 
you have to have the title at the top because that's the only bit of the cover you see. So it's got to be, it's got to be in a different colour every issue so you know it's the next issue. But we thought in a, in a direct sale comic book store, they tend to put them on a shelf. So it makes more sense to have the logo down the side. So that was one thing. Then when it came to the covers, the, the main thing that I wanted was that you should be able to look at any piece of Watchmen artwork and know it was Watchmen, mm-hmm. not get confused and it think, oh, it's, a, it's some other kind of comic. It had to look like, every page had to look like Watchmen. And so I proposed to Alan doing it on a nine-panel grid because I knew we had a really complicated story to tell. So to have a really simple grid like that would really simplify it. Mm. And would also let Alan know exactly where on each page everything was happening. Had you seen that used anywhere else? Well, a nine-panel grid. Well, yeah. I mean, Steve Ditko's Spider-Man comics right. were nearly all done on a nine-panel okay. grid. And a lot of European comics, uh, people like, you know, um, Hugo Pratt and people like that would, would use that. And it gave it a really formal, kind of timeless look. And at the time, a lot of comic artwork was done on what I would call the sort of poster principle where you'd have one big, iconic blow out image mm. with the other pictures around it but that doesn't really tell stories very well you look and it go wow and then you think oh, I'll just read the story whereas this forced you to read the story and actually because it was kind of unchanging forced you to go inside the picture and had the same effect of when you watch the TV at home you're focused on the TV and the cat's there and there's basket of ironing and there's something and, you know rubbish around it but you, you just look at the screen and everything else gets blanked out and I figured that would happen if you had a, a real grid like that, that you, you, you wouldn't get distracted by stuff elsewhere on the page. And then the question of the content of the cover, because I then realised that the space we had left on the cover mm. was like a, one of the panels. It was the same proportion as the mm. panels. And I knew that we didn't want to have leaping superheroes on it. So we said, what do you put on it to make it look intriguing? And then we decided, oh, maybe you could just repeat the first the first picture on the cover mm. and then we thought no it, it should be like the instant before mm. you know so in the case of yeah. this first one that's it's on the right here that's an extreme close-up and if you then go to the first page of the comic you started to pull back and the rest of the page is pulling back so mm. that that was the theory be, behind that and indeed um you know um the combination of yellow and black and red as, as Hitler and his chums found out, you know, was, was it, it, it's, it's perfect. It's very eye-catching. And um, so that's how it came about. The, the smiley face came about just because we had a character called the comedian who was dressed in black leather and it was a bit severe. And I thought, you know, how could I just make it look ironic? And I just drew a little smiley badge on it. Mm. And so then Alan then thought, ah, what we can do to imply the death of the comedian mm. is show his symbol in the gutter. So that became the opening of it. So that's why the first cover was a close-up on the, on the smiley face. And indeed, on, on that cover, that, if you like, is an even more extreme mm, close-up indeed. on the same thing. So it all sort of makes sense. And indeed, the horrible cover for the graphic novel, I call it the horrible cover, because we had to come up with it when we'd actually used up all our ideas and we were absolutely dry at that point, where it's the broken window... That was supposed to be the, the frame before that. That's where he'd gone out of the window and the badge was falling through the air. Nice. But to me, that never worked as, as a cover. To me, that is the cover of the Watchmen graphic novel. So if you've got that one, you've got the authentic version. Well, it just has that kind of iconic status, which yeah. is just brilliant. And it's interesting, on the latest printing that DC have done, they've taken the logo off as well, which I think is even better. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Um, Alan's got a bit of a reputation for writing long scripts for his art. I wonder, wonder where you're going with that. <laughs> here, here are two pages of A4 which describe the first three panels. Yeah. Of what yeah. yeah. Um, uh, this has been annotated by you, so presumably yeah. you're doing things like, okay, blues the dialogue, pick yeah. the bits I need to, to look at, and I'll just ignore the rest of what Alan Absolutely. Um, presumably, even with this longer script, he still gave you a fair amount of wriggle room in order to interpret what he had written you. Oh, yeah, well, the, the, the way that we would work on it, we would speak on the phone for literally four or five hours um, about each issue. And we talk about everything. We start off talking about the comic, but then we go off into music and childhood memories. And somehow we'd arrive at things that had a resonance. You know, that, that yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. We could, we could make it about that. Or the feeling we had, that funny feeling about golden age superheroes, that feeling that actually they... They captured beautifully in the movie with that shot of the Minutemen in their really clunky homemade costumes. You know, we get into that kind of thing about mood and feeling and affect. Um, and then Alan would write the script and he would sit at his typewriter. And I think he must have gone through three or four typewriters just <laughs> writing what's and he'd bash away at it. And these pages are single spaced, there's no indents, they'd be wrinkled, they'd have cigarette burns in them. They have snow paper on them, and of course they were done in triplicate on with carbon paper. You know, these weren't done on a computer screen. But the, the, but Alan's theory was he put down everything that occurred to him, and then I could out of that okay. pick, choose to draw what I wanted to draw. So yeah, I did. I would read the whole thing, and I would marvel at his description and the conversational way that he did it. But then I'd have to say, right, this is the dialogue. Mm. Now, what, what is the angle and what do I really need to show in this picture? And I was normally able to do... There was only one panel description that I did bork at, and that was towards the end where we're in... I think it was towards the end, where we're in Sally Jupiter's retirement home. Mm. And, and Alan said, um, we see the motes of dust dancing <laughs> in the slanting afternoon sunlight. And I know exactly what he means. We've all sat there and watched yeah, the, yeah. The, the... and But you... You can't draw that stuff. <laughs> so he would say to me, Dave, this is, this is the idea I've got. Um, and there was only one time that I had to actually say to him, you need to write less. Mm. And it was towards the end where um, uh, Rorschach and Night Owl are in Ozymandias' Karnak headquarters and they're, ha they're having a fight while there's a lot of exposition going on. And I said to Alan, I said, Alan, it's impossible when you draw it to believe that this amount could be said in the space, in the time that that action would take you. Just what I thought, Dave, I'll redo it. <laughs> and literally the next day I had the, the redone script, which was just as good, just as beautifully written, but with half the number of words in it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Because it looks like you've highlighted in yellow uh, the establishing shot, as it were. Pink is the mise-en-scene. Uh, and blue is the dialogue, so I, I guess you know yeah. you just had to fill it in order to make it manageable. Yes, yeah, I'm, yeah, you did because it was. I mean, I, I actually, um, I think the longest script he wrote was about for a twenty-eight page comic. It was about one hundred and ten pages, and that's a huge thing like that. And he wouldn't write it all continuously necessarily. You know, uh, I've spoken about this before, but when we were doing the fearful symmetry issue, where the whole thing is this carefully choreographed symmetrical storytelling that was written a page at a time mm -hmm. and I'd literally get a page or two of script draw it phone it and say Alan I'm running out of script right Dave and then he'd write another two pages and a taxi would arrive 
he'd send it by taxi. Again, no fax machines, no email. He, he'd, he'd give it to a guy in a taxi and he'd roll up outside my house 50 miles away and give me two pages of script uh-huh. and I'd draw it and then, and, and then we do the same thing. So Alan's ability to keep all this detail in his head is just amazing. Well, and also presumably the more of it you drew, the more he knew that you'd be remembering. So by the time we get to the final page, it's just a page of his text equates to a page of the comic. Yeah, and I think we were running out of time then as, as well. And he had, we, we had less time generally towards the end because we, we, had a, um, we had a schedule, Alan and I, that we knew we could meet. But DC brought it forward and wanted to bring the book out sooner. And we exactly hit our schedule, but I think we were about two months late. Um, but we, I think, with the, except for the last two issues, we did get it in the comic shop every month, which was the thing actually that the comic shop guys um, appreciated more more than anything that that book was there every month when the readers came in. And I know as a reader that when you go to the comic shop, you think, oh great, it's Friday, whatever the new comics are in, and pick up the latest Watchmen, and it's not there. You know that's so disappointing. So that was quite a point of honour t- to us. But at the end, yeah, we got so pushed for time that I think Alan. I, he, he, I think he trusted me from the beginning, but he felt less inclined to share his every passing thought, you know. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, it, was, it all had to be done much more quickly. Mm. You've worked for a number of different writers, and presumably they all have very different styles in the amount of information they communicate in their script. Um, what was working with Frank Miller like? Well, yeah, I mean, um, that, was a, that was a fantastic experience and such a contrast to working with. With, with Alan, you know, that my, my little um, uh, soundbite that I will say about this is that, you know, it's like if they were two musicians, Alan Moore and Frank Miller, uh, Alan is kind of Mozart, he sees the whole symphony in his head and can score the whole thing out, but Frank is like uh, a wonderful jazz player, like a Miles Davis, who can just pull things unexpectedly out, out of the air that you weren't expecting and, and, and will sort of riff on things expand things and or cut things down or we'll, we would drop pages and put new pages in or change the order of pages which was completely different than Alan's monolithic kind of style I'm not, and I'm not for a minute saying one is better than the other but it was such a wonderful mm. contrast you know um, and um, yeah um, and the thing that we did together I, I, again the thing I, I love about Frank Miller and I know Frank gets a lot of bad press and you know, I don't agree with every opinion of his, but he's very bold. He's very kind of courageous in the kind of things he does. When he did the the sort of follow up to Dark Knight, I even forget what it was called. If I'd if I'd been asked to do like Watchmen Two, I'd have just been, oh my god, how am I going to do this? It's got to be everybody loves it. It's got to be perfect. Oh god, it, it would, I would have found it really difficult and inhibited. I don't think you'd have made it self consciously awful though. No, 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 no. But I, I'd have made it. I, I'd have tried to make it as good as I could. But it would have been a, a terrible look, looking over your shoulder kind of thing. But Frank just blast blasted it out in a in a very again like he was playing a new jazz riff. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, we we all have our own um, opinion of it. But I thought it was such a bold way to do things, uh, and that is that's sort of characteristic of, of Frank's approach. So uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I have been. Just as with the artists who draw my scripts, I've been so lucky with the writers that mm. I've worked with and a huge privilege to work with Frank. And I don't know how many of you followed the Martha Washington saga through to its bitter end, but he, he, he rounded it, he literally its bitter end, mm. he, he, he rounded it off with a little kind of coda, a little story that was absolutely perfect. It was, I'd never in a million years have dreamed of ending it. We, 
we knew we were going to have to go to the very end of her life because we'd started on the, the day she was born. But I, I never saw the way he did it coming and it was so fresh and so clever, you know. So. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm going to skip ahead to another iconic writer that you've recently been working with, uh, which is to say... Um, God, you've got a load of stuff. Yeah, well, this I, is I, like I, a three-hour interview. I, I know. I, it's I, all I, great, I, though. Well, I'm sorry we have to skip well, past the originals. The originals, yeah. It's great. Um, uh, Can I just say about the originals? It was a thing that I wrote and drew. It's one of the few things that I've, I've written and drawn. Because, you know, by the time you've written something, to then draw it as well, sometimes you feel like you're telling the same joke again. Um, but the, the, the originals... Um, but it's based it's very autobiographical it's very much based on my experience growing up when I was a mod and I had a scooter and I had the clothes and, and all that stuff and I had hair and um, um, we're we, we, we going to bring that out I'm involved with a company called Madefire ah. who do digital comics there's an app that you can download for um, iOS and for Android for free where you can read all sorts of comics that you know and ones you don't know and the originals which now I look at it is perfectly formatted to fit on an iPad screen mm. uh, we're going to be publishing that hopefully in the next few months so you'll be able to read that whole story um, on on there because I don't think the back issues are that um, available uh, and at some point um, I'm hoping to do like a director's cut where I'll put I'll explain the autobiographical stuff and as usual I've kept all my roughs and all my notes and, and, and everything like that and actually um, a guy called Cass Brown who's quite involved with the, with gorillas he actually um, let me listen to some music that's kind of it sounds like music from that time but it isn't it's all freshly made up so if the stars are in the right position we might even be able to have a bit of a soundtrack on it as well but um, as I say that that's a fair way way off but if you're interested in the originals uh, that is going to be coming out um, electronically pretty soon cool um and I own it. And I get all the money. <laughs> Excellent. So a recent collaboration of yours has been with Mark Miller on The Secret Service, uh, which, like Watchmen, has just been turned into a movie, uh, Kingsman. Mm. Working with Mark on this comic, which was sort of simultaneously published in the magazine Clint in British format and in American format as The Secret Service, mm -hmm. did that present any challenges knowing that it was coming out in a larger and a smaller, smaller format simultaneously? I was completely oblivious to that. Oh, really? I, I, I had <laughs> no idea at all. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that was really uh, up to Mark because he virtually edited Clint. I mean, he was the edit editorial di director. I had no idea how it was going to be chopped up. I was thrilled to see it. I thought Clint was a really nice format. I thought it was a really strong package of uh, stories you know but no I just drew it as if it was a regular comic and then it was presented like that <laughs> and doing a spy comic was it something that you'd spoken to Mark about or did he literally say I'm writing this and I want Dave Gibbons to draw it well you know we wanted to do something together <clears throat> and Mark's always got a raft of ideas as, as any of you who f follow him know um, and um he, he, he pitched the idea of Secret Service and I thought, wow, this is, this is great. I've never really done a spy book. I've done a lot of science fiction. I've done a lot of kind of fantasy and superhero stuff, but I've never actually done a spy book. And that sounded really good to me because it was a genre that I hadn't done before. We, we did have a, there were a few teething problems near the beginning where it looked like we might not be able to go ahead and do it. And he said to me, oh, I've got some other stuff, Dave. I've got this superhero thing that you could do. And that's the thing that 
um, Vince uh, Frank Quietly's doing now um, Jupiter's Legacy I think mm. it's called and I said no 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 I, I want to stick with the spy I'll stick with it and we, if we get it sorted out we go ahead and do that um, and the, the movie was actually kind of developed in parallel with the comic book so in that respect it's sort of unlike Watchmen it wasn't like there was the comic and then the movie makers based the comic on it the two things uh, you, you know the, again my little soundbite was that whereas the, the sort of Watchmen movie was the sort of offspring of, of um, you, you, you know the older Watchmen book it was like the son of Watchmen if you like the two the Secret Service comic and movie are like brothers you know they've got a lot of the same DNA and in certain lights they look alike but in certain other lights they're completely mm. different but the main thrust of the story is there whereas in the comic book our, our villain is a sort of Bill Gates sort of nerdy Silicon Valley type in the in the movie, it's Samuel L. Jackson. So you know, there's there's a there's a there's a kind of change there. But um, I've seen a rough cut of the movie, and it it's fantastic. I'm so so thrilled about it. It sort of does for spies what Kickass did for costumed heroes. So if you like Kickass, and I think most people did, I think you really love this. And in the movie, they don't kill off Mark Hamill in the first scene. No, they don't. Mark Hamill is in the movie, but not okay. as playing himself. And, and I mean, I mean, that was a weird thing with the script when I when I got it from Mark Miller. It said, you know, we see Mark Hamill being held hostage in an Alpine chalet. I mean, somebody who looks like Mark Hamill. But then they're talking about Star Wars. I thought this is really bizarre, and, and it, it was cool actually because I actually made friends with Luke Skywalker, you know, and uh, um, um, and uh, got to email him backwards and forwards a few times, and he was very gracious about it particularly because obviously the likeness that I drew of him and it's back to likenesses again was of him as he is now which is slightly more mature than he was as handsome baby-faced Luke back well, then now he'll be playing beardy Luke in the new movies so. well yeah that's true and and um but he was very gracious I mean he's a huge comics and science fiction fan anyway so yeah that that, that, that was really amusing to do that um, we've got about 10 minutes for questions. I don't know if there's a, a roving mic in the audience or you'll just have to shout. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, you said you had a friend, was it John Asprey did uh, storyboard? Martin Asprey. Martin Asprey. And I was just wondering if you ever thought of going that way at a time, just doing more and more? Yeah, well, it, it, it's a funny thing. As you go on and you draw more and more and more, I think one of the reasons why I've, I've very rarely drawn something that I've written is because after a while the drawing becomes almost the least interesting, the actual drawing becomes the least interesting thing about it. To express the story in pictures is one thing, but then have to, to finish it off. If you've got other ideas bubbling, to me now, it feels a little bit restrictive. I still love to draw, and I do commissions for people and things like, like that. Probably shouldn't have said that. And, and, um, um, and I do like to draw the, the, the odd thing, and there's something about doing storyboards where they're just the expression of the idea graphically. You know, when I was a kid, I loved really detailed art, like Frank Hampson or Wallywood or Will Elder. But as I got older, I started to appreciate people like Alex Toth or even Mike Sikowski used to draw the Justice League, that pared-down way of drawing. So I think, yeah, I probably would enjoy doing storyboards. But it's a quite a demanding industry. And the other thing about it is that very little of what you draw ever gets seen. You draw it and they bin it, you know, shoot it and they, and they, and they just throw it out. But... The reason that Martin Asbury became a storyboard artist was Ridley Scott was going to make Dune, you know, the Frank Herbert novel. And he called together some comics people, Martin Asbury, me, Kevin O'Neill was there. And he said, oh, there's this sequence and I want you all to storyboard it and I'll choose the one that I like the best. 
And we said, are, are we going to get paid? He said, well, no, you know, you're sort of doing it on spec. So when we got out of the me- meeting, I said to Kev, well, I'm not going to do it for nothing. And Kev said, no, I'm not either. So we didn't even bother. And Martin did do the storyboard yeah. for nothing. And although they never made Dune, he did some other storyboarding for Ridley Scott. And, and he then got on to other movies and did the Superman movies, the Batman movies, James Bond movies, you know. And he's had a really, really lucrative and interesting career drawing storyboards. So, yeah, that's the closest I came anyway. Because it would mean everything you did would be like a thumbnail, I guess, if you worked on storyboards. Well, that's true, yeah. And, and drawn with just enough information to get the story point over and not draw it. Because sometimes I think, as I'm drawing one, how many ears have I drawn? <laughs> how many noses? How many feet? You know, it's, and I mean, that sounds like... Kind of, so that's why nowadays I still love to draw and I really know what turns you guys on who, who like to draw yourself. And I'm not saying, oh, don't waste your time drawing. It is great. And, but I think at different times in your life, it has a different appeal. And I find myself now more drawn towards kind of consulting on things and designing things and that other people actually do the do the, the, the sort of the, the, um, the hard work, basically. Something that you designed, for example. Yeah, yeah. But I, I did some designs for Steel Sky, which is um, a video game, and I really, really enjoyed doing that because, of course, you find out that actually games guys are just like comics guys, whereas I grew up sitting in my bedroom reading comics, drawing my own heroes. They grew up playing games and writing their own games, you know, so they're the same kind, there's the same enthusiasm in that field, so I'm naturally drawn to, to collaborating on computer games and things. Any other questions uh, in the middle? Um, how does it feel having a huge breadth of work through your career but being associated mainly with just one of those <laughs> works <laughs> Well, I mean, mustn't grumble, really. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm so lucky to have worked on something that's had that breadth of appeal. And it's obviously, you know, um, been so good for me in all sorts of levels. Um, I mean, again, what's nice is uh, in the interview we've had here, it's nice to touch on the other things I've done because I think there's some people who don't know my work particularly, but I think, well, he's the guy who did Watchmen 25 years ago and that's all he's ever done, you know. Um, if that was the case, I'd be quite happy with that, I must say, you know. Um, somebody interviewed me a few weeks ago in the States and attributed something to me that I did say, but I actually swiped it from Joseph Heller. Somebody said to Joseph Heller, eh, you wrote Catch-22 Catch a quarter of a century ago and you've never written anything better. And Joseph Heller said, true, but neither's anybody else. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've got a Watchman version of that. You know. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I do jokingly say, the, the older I get, the less jokingly, that the word Watchman is probably going to be in the first sentence, if not the first line of my obituary. But there are worse things to be remembered for, aren't there? Something very recent, for example, treatment. <laughs> treatment, yeah, it's a thing that is a, an idea that I kicked around for a long time. And when um, when I started working with Madefire, which is the digital uh, app, um, they said, "Oh, you know, we'd love to feature a new property by you." And I came up with this idea of treatment, who are basically a futuristic police force, who are also a reality TV show. Um, and uh, there have been several episodes of it on Madefire, only a couple of which I've written uh, but it's been written by people like Robbie Morrison who's a great writer and drawn by people like um, I'm going to blank on the guy's name it's so rude of me anyway um, so he's he's drawn it and um, Dennis Cowan drew drew some stuff um, but I've actually just finished working on a, like a movie length script of it 
or graphic novel length script, but 120 pages or about two hours, which is the kind of origin of treatment, if you like, how they came about. Um, the reason they're called treatment is because I've always been fascinated by youth gangs, and I think it was the supporters of, might be Millwall, I think it was probably Chelsea Football Club, used to go to away matches in other people's towns and beat the local supporters up, <laughs> wearing like surgical masks, and leave a little card on them saying, you have met treatment. So they were like treatment, and I've always thought it's 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 such a threatening kind of thing, you know, treatment. That I thought, yeah, these people, are, my heroes, are sort of treating the the ills of, of big cities in the various cities around the world, but they're slightly sinister as well. So yeah, that's treatment. Mm. Uh, any more questions? Do you think there's anything still unique to comics, or that that can be done in comics but can't be done in the movies anymore with the development of technology and so many superhero and Marvel? DC films coming out? Oh yeah, I mean, I think the wonderful thing about comics is that they're so sort of democratic. You know, if you want to become a movie maker, you've got to have sound gear, you've got to have cameras, you've got to have actors, you've got to have cutting suites, you've got to have all this kind of stuff. But to make a comic, even if you're going to completely copy it from, from another comic, all you need is a piece of paper and a pen. And all that stands between you and, and and anything is your talent. You know, it's such an informal and democratic thing to do. And I think now digitally, um, Mayfire actually give their tool away free. If you go into DeviantArt and look for motion books, they will give you their tool for free and you can make your own motion comics. So with comics, what you always get is the real personal vision. It doesn't have to be approved by accountants or studio executives. You come up with an idea, you put it down on paper. And if it's a good enough idea, you know, the world's your, your oyster. You can go any, anywhere with it. So I think for the really personal exploration of an idea, you really can't, in words and pictures, you really can't beat comics. Mm. Well, and also, you know, even when you're adapting comics to new technology, something like these pages from Treatment, uh, the, the page on the right, for example, to get to that status, you've had to have gone next panel, next panel, next panel on the interface. Yeah. And, for example, the panel at the top would have been much higher contrast, and then that fades out as we see the panel below, mm-hmm. and then that fades out as we see the panel below. Yeah. So it's new technology, but it's still comics. It, it is. really and, nice. And that's the thing that we emphasise about the Made for stuff. It's still a reading experience. It's not like cut-down, cheap animation. You actually read it at your own speed. And when you come to write a script for it, it's really interesting because... The, one of the little treatment things that I wrote, I, I sat down at my computer and went, right, page one, panel one. And then I thought, no, actually, there aren't really any pages here. It doesn't. You don't have to turn a page to another page. And there actually, you don't have to just have a panel and another panel. You have to think about the transition. Do you fade into the other one? Do you leave this one still showing when you see this? Do you put the word balloon in before the picture, after the picture? Do you change the word balloon and keep it? And so you get into this whole world, which is exactly the same kind of decisions you make when you draw a comic, the readability and the the unfolding of the story. Because that is what comics are about. I think perhaps coming back to the storyboard thing, it's not just the drawing. The art of comics is not drawing the pictures. The art of comics is telling the story. And that's what I've always been interested in. That's why I wanted to be a comic book artist rather than just an illustrator because it's that telling of pictures and juxtaposing one image with another and controlling the pace. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is what is fascinating about comics, not just drawing ears. <laughs> <laughs> 
speaking of new technology, if you'd like to stalk either of us, we're both on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the many sponsors of the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, Arts Council, Satellite and mm-hmm. District Council, the ones on the left, which I can't see from here. Um, and I'd very much like to thank David Gibbon. Tumultuous applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, Alex. Thanks very much. That was good. Good, good. I could have got you. You had so much good I know, stuff there. I, know. I, I could have gone forever. Not enough hours in the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Well, we'll, we'll have to do part two. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to keep up with Dave Gibbon's work, why not follow him on Twitter? His handle is Dave Gibbons ninety. That's Dave Gibbons nine zero, where he tweets about all his latest projects. Dave's work on Doctor Who comic book strips featuring Tom Baker and Peter Davison, are available in three graphic novel collections, starting with The Iron Legion, co-written by Pat Mills and John Wagner, and the graphic novel Watchmen, in defiance of its writer Alan Moore's wishes, is a book that never goes out of print and is available as both hardback and paperback editions. My interview with Dave was recorded on stage at the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, which takes place in the town of Kendall in October each year. This year's festival takes place between the 16th and 18th of October, and I'll be there interviewing such comic book luminaries as French webcomic artist Boulet, Guardian cartoonists Steve Bell and Stephen Appleby, European graphic novelist Winchless, and many more. You can find more information about the Lakes International Comic Art Festival by going to Comic Art festival.com as part of the cult cinema festival cine excess there's a mini graphic brighton event featuring 2000 ad writer and co-founder pat mills who'll be talking about his work setting up 2000 ad in the late 1970s and editing the controversial british action comic the content of which was considered so controversial and shocking it was discussed in parliament and the comic book was put on hiatus until the next issue was pulped and its content toned down. Cine Excess is taking place at the University of Brighton on the 12th and 13th of November, and you can find more information by going to cine-excess.co.uk. On the subject of film, at Orbital Comics, 8 Great Newport Street by Leicester Square Tube, they have an exhibition of the work of artist actress and graphic novelist Jessica Martin of her graphic novel Elsie about an usherette in an art deco picture palace. The exhibition is on until October the 5th and on the 25th of September Jessica will be hosting a drawing class in the shop from 7pm until close. For more information about Orbital events please go to orbitalcomics.com. Over the line an introduction to poetry comics curated by poet Chrissy Williams and artist Tom Humberston, is the featured exhibition at the Poetry Café in London until the end of October. And you can find more information about the Poetry Café by going to poetrysociety.org.uk or heading to the venue itself at 22 Betterton Street off Covent Garden, London WC2H9BX. An event to put in your diaries for October 
is the Caption Small Press and Indie Comic Book Festival, which is taking place at Fargo Village in Coventry on the 10th and 11th of October. Guests include Leah Moore, John Repian, Hunt Emerson, Al Davison, Paul Rainey, Paul Duffield, Laura Howell, and many more, and alongside talks by these creators from the Beano and 2000 AD, there'll be workshops, a comic book quiz, and a special film screening. For more information about Caption, please go to caption.org. The next episode of Panel Borders will be broadcast at 8 o'clock on the 13th of October, and the second Tuesday of every month after that. You can find all previous episodes at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. And if tonight has been your first experience of Panel Borders, I hope you'll check out some of the earlier episodes on my website. And thank you very much for listening.